Are filmmakers really artists? I can hear you recoiling at the question now. What the hell? I thought this was a podcast about the great artists of cinema. And yes, it is. But even the most fervent defender would have to admit there's a certain lack of purity in movie making that just isn't present in other mediums. A singer can walk out onto the street and just start singing. A painter can conceivably make a masterpiece in their bedroom. And a writer can just pick up a pen. But a filmmaker depends on all this extra stuff. Camera, lens, medium on which to capture the moving images, a means of processing those images, and then a projector or broadcast screen of some kind. And these things cost money. And it's the money that comes in and perverts that artistic purity found in other disciplines. And I know that this is an oversimplification and that all artists need to pay the bills, but if we were looking just at the cost of entry on a graph, most art forms would be way down by the x-axis, and cinema is way up on the y. Let me put this another way. By some estimates, the average global salary, that's annual salary in the world right now, today, is somewhere between three and four thousand US dollars. That's shocking in and of itself. The average major Hollywood studio movie is about sixty million dollars. That's not including distribution and marketing, but just to get the movie in the can. That means it would take the average global citizen 20,000 years, four times as long as the entire span of recorded human history, just to save up enough money to produce Magic Mike's Last Dance. And I think that that starts to put into perspective just how expensive this art form is. Now, I believe that when you look at the history Film has always been and always will be an economic vehicle first. Does that mean it's less artistic than, say, Ikkyu Sojin, the Japanese monk who wrote poems on leaves only to throw them into the wind? I don't know. But the question fascinates me. And it's one of the reasons I chose to cover Melvin Van Peebles. Because there are few directors who have used the skills of deal-brokering businessman to pursue such unadulterated artistic purity. Now, I want to read something that Melvin wrote. It's from his book, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, about the making of his most influential film of the same name. He says, quote, One of the worst things about filmmaking is that you're limited to the level of intelligence of the guy you're trying to get bread from. Already, I love this quote. Okay, he continues. This is especially true and frustrating if you're doing anything really innovative. When money can't understand, you're usually in trouble, breadwise. In the first place, if he could understand it as a projection forward into a new universe, he would be the artist. Suppose a painting cost as much as a film. Imagine Cezanne trying to get someone to give him a million dollars to make a painting he wouldn't have been able to get it off the ground. 
Of course, Delacroix would have. Delacroix would go to the patron and say, look, I, uh, I want to do this painting, and there's going to be this woman, and she's like half drowning on a raft. You'll see a titty, too. And then right around the raft, you're going to see a shark, and a, and a storm might be coming up, and, and maybe there'll be a, be a boat in the background representing hope. And the patron would yell, I can see it. I can see it. Yes, you've got the bread. And Cezanne comes in and says, I want to do an orange. And the cat says, an orange? Where's the plot? And besides, people have already done oranges. What's the matter with you, kid? Are you some kind of egomaniac or something? You think you're better than Monet or Chardin or something? And he would name the whole list of all the people who had done oranges. And besides, still lifes aren't selling so hot right now. It's different, sir, anyone might try to explain. Oh, how different can an orange be, for Christ's sake? An orange is an orange. What kind of freak are you anyway? But a Cezanne orange isn't like any other orange. And it only makes sense in the image itself, in the visual, the actual visual. It's not literature, it's painting. Some of the heaviest cats who have ever been in cinema defy description in purely verbal storyline terms. Just as an orange only gives us the vaguest inkling of a Cezanne orange until we see it, verbal descriptions of Charlie Chaplin's City Lights or Kurosawa's Throne of Blood don't begin to touch the cinematic dimensions of the films themselves. No more than a concert can encompass a novel by Richard Wright. But words are cheap, like they say, and films expensive. So we continue to try to make one medium do the work of another. The cinematic qualities in American films are usually byproducts, because an American film is usually literature first. Sometimes you can almost hear the patron yelling, I can see it. I can see it. I can see it. Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films. You gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Behind the Slate. Once again, I am your host, Aaron Strand, and oh boy, do we have a good one today. But first, I want to give a quick reminder that if you like the work we're doing, be sure to rate and review the show, hit us with the five stars, and if you listen on Apple Podcasts and want to leave a little review, it would sure go a long way to helping us out. Now, I have to give a huge shout out to Khadijah Adams over at D's Cookies. Okay, this company is based out of Columbus, Ohio, and she was recently invited to create a custom Melvin Van Peebles cookie for the Ohio Wesleyan University first annual Melvin Van Peebles Symposium. How cool is that? And while she was working in her kitchen, she apparently listened to our show and then she was kind enough to shout us out on Instagram and even send me and my wife an assorted box of cookies. And they are seriously 
amazing. I have had to cut myself off from these cookies. They're so good. And she's got a full range of delicious treats and ships across the country. So the next time you need artisan cookies for an event, as a gift, or just to enjoy at home, and you want to support a Black-owned business at the same time, head over to DeesCookies.com. That's D-E-E-Z, D's Cookies. You will not be disappointed. Finally, I have some omissions and corrections from our last episode that I'd like to share. I don't love doing this. You know, I'd love to get everything right the first time. But as I said on the last show, Melvin Van Peebles was a mysterious dude. And my main sources for the show are his own interviews. And for these interviews, he basically has boiled his life story down to a series of myths, parables, and one-liners. And I have listened to hours and hours of him telling the same stories over and over again with the same beats, the same jokes, the same catchphrases, and every now and then he drops in a new detail. So here are a few of those details that I missed from the previous installment. Okay, number one, according to a 1990 interview on NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross, Melvin casually mentions that he was one of the first black Eagle Scouts in Southern Chicago. I can't confirm this, and it hasn't been mentioned in any other interview or article, but there it is. Okay, next, and this is one that I just straight up got wrong. In almost every internet article, Melvin's ex-wife, Maria Marx, is described as a German-born actress. However, in a 1995 interview with Charlie Rose, Van Peebles corrects this, saying that she is not German, but is in fact from Virginia. Furthermore, when they began living together, Melvin was no longer based in San Angelo, Texas, but had been moved, as part of the Air Force, to San Francisco, California. This kind of explains more of why they moved back to San Francisco after leaving Mexico. Now, if Melvin is a mystery... Maria Marx is a freaking cryptid in this story. She is clearly someone who does not want to be a public figure at all. I was able to glean from one of Melvin's books that while he was making his short films in San Francisco, he was supporting her as she finished a degree of some kind. I'm not sure what it was. And then after she and Melvin divorced, she moved back to San Francisco and becomes fully involved in the Bay Area hippie scene. In the DVD commentary to his biographical film Badass, Mario Van Peebles mentions that growing up, he hung out with his mother and the Grateful Dead. Now, speaking of Maria Marx, I have a correction not for myself, but for the rest of the internet that I just want to get out of the way right here and now. So on every web page about her, they all say that she played the role of Anna in the infamous 1975 Canadian exploitation film Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS. If you know this film, you'll know why I'm smiling and cringing at the same time. Now, I'm going to say this with 98% certainty. This is not true. Okay, first of all, the character of Anna in the film looks nothing like the photos of Maria Marx that we do have. Secondly, as I said, Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS was released in 1975, meaning Maria Marx would have been in her early 40s, and yet the character of Anna in the film is clearly younger than that. Finally, 
I find it really hard to believe that a 40-year-old hippie mother of two, who is clearly not a fan of the spotlight, would suddenly decide to make her on-screen debut in one of the most notorious, sexually explicit torture films of all time. So, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and call this false. Okay, some more missed details. After Melvin was fired from working on the cable car, he actually filed a wrongful termination lawsuit against the city of San Francisco. And he hints that while working at the post office to make ends meet, he was subjected to retaliation from the city, and this was perhaps the real impetus for his moving to Amsterdam. Okay, next. In 1964, while working as a French journalist, Melvin Van Peebles interviewed Malcolm X during his pilgrimage to Mecca, and the meeting left a huge impression on Melvin, but his article was never published because Malcolm X was deemed too controversial. In 1965, while already a contributing member to Harakiri, Van Peebles was hired as the editor of a short-lived attempt to bring Mad Magazine to France. The magazine was an exact copy of the American edition in a French translation and ultimately only ran for six issues. Also while working for Harakiri, Melvin edited a graphic novel version of the Chester Himes book A Rage in Harlem with illustrations done by Georges Volinsky. Volinsky was an original member of the Harakiri staff and continued with the magazine after it became Charlie Hebdo for over 50 years. In 2015, at the age of 80, Georges Volinsky was one of the 12 people killed when armed terrorists stormed the Charlie Hebdo offices in Paris in retaliation for the magazine publishing cartoons that showed the face of the Muslim prophet Muhammad. Finally, and this is my last detail for the day, after completing the story of a three-day pass, but before he traveled to San Francisco for the film festival, Melvin was walking down the Champs-Élysées when he recognized the famed African-American photographer for Life magazine, Gordon Parks. He runs up, introduces himself, and invites Gordon out for lunch. There... Parks reveals that for years he had a dream of becoming a filmmaker, but had always had the door shut in his face. Melvin asks him if he wants to see something. He takes Gordon to the Cinematheque and holds a private screening for the story of a three-day pass. Parks couldn't believe it, and the meeting left a huge impression on both men. I think that does it for corrections for now. It is my goal that this will be the most complete biography of Melvin Van Peebles available. So if there's anything else you think I missed, you can always email me behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. That's behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. Now, when we last left off, it was October 1967, and the story of a three-day pass had just completed a triumphant premiere, winning the top prize at the San Francisco International Film Festival. The country looked very different from the one that Melvin had left in 1959. American troops had been fighting in Vietnam for three years. San Francisco had just experienced the summer of love when thousands of young hippies descended on the Haight-Ashbury district to take drugs, listen to rock music, and, 
supposedly drop out from the consumerist society that didn't represent them. And most importantly, the civil rights movement had made racial inequality the number one issue in the country. But after hard-fought victories in outlawing desegregation and ensuring voting rights, the movement was now fracturing. For many black Americans, 1967 was not the summer of love, but the long, hot summer, during which more than 150 incidents of racial violence and rioting occurred across the country, leaving 83 people dead, thousands injured, and millions of dollars in property damaged. The growing social unrest only intensified the ongoing white flight to the suburbs, and this change had a profound impact on the movie industry, already floundering as television became the dominant form of popular entertainment, and changing consumer tastes left the former studio tentpoles of big musicals and westerns failing to recoup their budgets. If you listen to our episode with Professor Chris Sieving, you know that despite civil rights being on the TV news throughout the 1960s, Hollywood was slow to bring black faces to the big screen. Their few efforts, such as 1961's Raisin in the Sun, gained some critical praise but were not able to connect with black audiences and their wallets in the way that studio execs had hoped. They concluded that black stories simply weren't profitable, and instead they tailored their few forays into the quote-unquote race issue through an integrationist formula. Films such as 1963's Lilies of the Field and 1967's In the Heat of the Night and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner all starred Sidney Poitier, the man the studios considered to be the only bankable black actor, and all had plots about how white people reacted to a black person in their midst rather than a black person living and experiencing the world from their point of view. Melvin's overnight success spawned a palpable sense of shame. He later said, quote, Coming back and winning the 1967 San Francisco International Film Festival was very embarrassing to Hollywood, because at that time, all places were being encouraged to have a colored one or two people, but Hollywood didn't have any black directors. And so I was offered a job. Before the festival had even concluded, Melvin was on a plane to Los Angeles, where he met with multiple studios to discuss becoming Hollywood's first black director. He turned all the offers down. Quote, I didn't take the job when I won the festival because they would have been using me to not give anyone else a job. My idea was that I was going to freeze Hollywood. Now, according to Melvin, he refused all the offers because he knew that if he took a job, it would be used as an excuse to not hire any other black directors, and his French credentials would be used to discriminate against other African Americans hoping to break into the industry. Now, I'll be honest, that sounds really good, but I'm not sure if I completely believe it. I mean, it sounds like a little bit of myth-making. It, and it might be partially true, and that meeting with Gordon Parks could have been on his mind. But I think there were other factors as well. He still had an entire life in France, including another son, Max Van Peebles, who was born sometime in the mid-60s. I'm not really sure when. It could also be that there were no scripts about the Black experience that interested him. 
And studios certainly wouldn't have offered him a script just directing a story about white people. But the biggest reason why I kind of doubt Melvin's version of the story here is that we have clues that he was not a black revolutionary at this point, at least not one that was in line with the ideology of black power. Instead, he was advocating for the right to be ordinary. This was his central thesis of the story of a three-day pass, and he would later write an entire manifesto in French, which he included in the novel version of the film. At the festival press conference, when asked about the growing racial unrest in America, Melvin said, quote, These journalist cats here, they talk about race riots, and I say, shut up, let's talk about film editing. And in another interview, quote, They want me to be obsessed with the racial problem. I'm obsessed with the human problem. These sound far more like the arguments of a French intellectual than a black power revolutionary. And this is just me speculating here, but it doesn't quite sound like a man who is turning down job offers just to make a racial stand. If he really wants to be ordinary, wouldn't he conceivably accept a directing job just like any other ordinary director? And I say this not to call Melvin out or to doubt his validity as a revolutionary thinker. I certainly wouldn't be qualified to do that. But it's to enforce his future artistic work. See, his future stories will deal with characters who start in a somewhat selfish, sort of me-first mindset, and they evolve into black revolutionaries. And I think the same thing happened to him. And in an incredible twist of historical fate, at literally the exact same moment that Melvin Van Peebles was meeting with these Hollywood bigwigs in Los Angeles, an event took place in Oakland, California, that would come to galvanize the Black Power movement and would push Melvin into the cultural zeitgeist of revolutionary politics. On the dawn of October 28th, Huey P. Newton, co-founder of the Black Panther Party, was out celebrating the end of his probation. See, in 1964, he was convicted of assault with a deadly weapon for repeatedly stabbing a man named Odell Lee with a steak knife. Anyway, as Newton and an unidentified partner crossed 7th Street and Broadway in his car, he was pulled over by Oakland police officer John Frey. Recognizing Newton, Frey called for backup. Officer Herbert Haynes arrived shortly thereafter, and what followed has been the subject to debate ever since. Haynes claimed that Officer Frey informed Newton that he was being arrested, at which point Newton produced a concealed weapon, shooting both Haynes and Frey. Haynes returned fire, shooting Newton in the stomach. A nearby bus driver corroborated this account. However, Newton claimed that upon learning his identity, Officer Frey dragged him from the vehicle, hurled racial epithets at him, struck him in the face, brandished his firearm, and shot Newton in the stomach. Newton claims he was unconscious or semi-conscious as an unknown person or persons returned fire in his defense. He was later taken to Kaiser Hospital before being arrested. 
No one knows the truth, but in the end, Newton suffered a gunshot wound to the stomach, Officer Haynes was shot in the arm, and Officer Frey was shot four times in the chest, later dying from his injuries. The arrest, trial, and subsequent Free Huey campaign brought unprecedented attention from both the public and the FBI onto the Black Panther Party and their ideology of a Marxist Black revolution. And although he does not speak about it, Melvin Van Peebles was clearly moved. Now, it's difficult to pin down exactly where Melvin was during the winter of 67-68. I'm pretty sure he returned to France, celebrating his success with his French colleagues, while also negotiating the French release of the story of a three-day pass under the title La Permission. He then adapted it into a novel which was published in coordination with the film's theatrical run. However, the situation in America was rapidly changing. On January 15, 1968, 20th Century Fox announces that they have paid the largest ever price for the film rights to a novel. The book was titled The Confessions of Nat Turner, a controversial Pulitzer Prize winner about Nat Turner's slave revolt written by white author William Styron. In the heat of the night, director Norman Jewison is hired to direct, along with Broadway actor James Earl Jones in the role of Nat Turner. The film was expected to be the first ever big-budget historical epic about African-American characters. However, due to the book's portrayal of Nat Turner as an indecisive, neurotic hero lusting after the white daughter of his enslaver, several prominent black writers teamed up with the Los Angeles chapter of the NAACP to protest the production. The NAACP had long been trying to bring attention to Hollywood's lack of diversity, both in executive and directorial positions, but also on writing staffs and on the technical crews, which were controlled by notoriously racist unions that had discriminated against non-white members for decades. On February 28th, the Kerner Commission, an 11-member federal panel tasked by President Lyndon Johnson to investigate the cause of the racial violence over the previous summer, released their findings in what came to be known as the Kerner Report. The document laid out the problems in American society with a shocking degree of honesty. Quote, Our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white separate and unequal. What white Americans have never fully understood, but what the Negro can never forget, is that white society is deeply implicated in the ghetto. White institutions created it, white institutions maintain it, and white society condones it. It went on to chastise federal and state governments for failed housing, education, and social service policies, but its sharpest criticism was aimed at the media, including Hollywood. Quote, It has too long basked in a white world, looking out of it, if at all, with white men's eyes and white perspective. On March 29th, emboldened by the Kerner Report, a full-page ad in The Hollywood Reporter declares, quote, Negroes protest 
Turner bio, with prominent theater actor and director Ozzie Davis and comedian Godfrey Cambridge leading the charge against the film. They discouraged any black artists from joining the cast or crew. Shortly thereafter, editor John Henrik Clark publishes a collection of essays titled William Styron's Nat Turner, Ten Black Writers Respond. They denounced the novel and film adaptation. The project was eventually scrapped, and Hollywood executives concluded that the quote-unquote race problem was too much of a risk for large financial investments. Six days after the Hollywood Reporter ad, on April 4, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. The result was an explosion of grief and violence across the country that surpassed even the turbulent summer of the previous year. As Peter Levy writes in his book, The Great Uprising, Race Riots in Urban America During the 1960s, quote, During Holy Week 1968, the United States experienced its greatest wave of social unrest since the Civil War. Around 3,500 people were injured, 43 were killed, and 27,000 were arrested. April 6th, two days after the King assassination, Black Panther Minister of Information Eldridge Cleaver, against the advice of many other party members, organizes a violent retaliation against police. Twelve Panthers engage in a shootout with Oakland police officers. Cleaver and a 17-year-old boy named Bobby Hutton, who was the first ever recruit to join the Panthers, retreated to a house basement where they were surrounded by the police. The cops tear-gassed the building. Deciding to surrender, Cleaver instructed Hutton to strip down to his underwear to prove that he was not a threat. Hutton refused, and as he exited the basement, he was shot over ten times at point-blank range, becoming the first Black Panther Party member to be killed by law enforcement. Cleaver was injured but survived. His reckless actions and erratic behavior caused a schism within the Panthers. After being delayed two days because of the assassination of Dr. King, the 40th Academy Awards were held on April 10th. In the Heat of the Night won Best Picture, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner won Best Screenplay. However, modern critics were quick to note that the two supposedly progressive films already felt woefully out of date. The following day, April 11th, President Johnson signs the 1968 Civil Rights Act in an attempt to politically quell the tension. But while the bill did contain new protections for Native peoples and fair housing legislation, it also contained the Anti-Riot Act, making it a felony to, quote, travel in interstate commerce with the intent to incite, promote, encourage, participate in, and carry on a riot. This only empowered law enforcement to meet organized political protest with organized violence. The next day, April 12th, Bobby Hutton's funeral was held in Berkeley, California. The eulogy was given by Marlon Brando, who afterward stood on a stage surrounded by Black Panthers and addressed a crowd of several thousand people. I'm not going to stand up here and make a speech because white people, you've been listening to white people for 400 years. They said they were going to do something. They haven't done a thing, as far as I'm concerned, in re-enfranchising the black man. It's up to the individual to do something, to force the government to give the black man a decent place to live, a decent place to bring his children up in. 
That could have been my son lying there. And I'm going to do as much as I can. I'm going to start right now to inform white people of what they don't know. The Reverend said, the white man can't cool it because he's never dug it. And I'm here to try to dig it. Because I myself as a white man have got a long way to go and a lot to learn. I haven't been in your place. I haven't suffered the way you've suffered. I'm just beginning to learn the nature of that experience. And somehow that has to be translated to the white community now. Time's running out for everybody. That's enough. That's enough talking. Now, right around this time, Gordon Parks gets a call from, of all people, actor and filmmaker John Cassavetes. Cassavetes had just wrapped production on Rosemary's Baby and was finishing a three-year editing process on his groundbreaking independent feature film, Faces. Parks later recalled, quote, So Cassavetes calls me and said, I just read The Learning Tree, the book you wrote. You should make a motion picture out of it. I said, You're talking about me directing it? He said, Yeah. I said, They're not going to let any black directors in Hollywood. Cassavetes says, Can you come out to Hollywood the day after tomorrow? I want you to meet this new producer at Warner Brothers. I walked into his office. The Learning Tree book was lying on the table. He gave me a cup of coffee, and Cassavetes left. He said, I just read your book, you know, and uh, I think uh, it's awfully good. Would you like to pick someone to write the screenplay? I said, I don't, I don't know anyone out here. He said, why don't you write the screenplay? You wrote the book. Mm-hmm. I said, well, okay. Cassavetes tells me you're a composer. He said, well, uh, I would think you would want to compose the music for it, too. I, <laughs> why not? <laughs> I thought he was lying to me all along. <laughs> uh, then he said, now, since you're going to be the first black director on a major film here in Hollywood, uh, we think you should produce it for Warner Brothers. I said, why not? Because I figured the guy was lying. Gordon Parks became the first black director ever hired by a Hollywood studio. Now, I can't confirm the dates, but at some point in the spring of 1968, Melvin goes to New York City, most likely to negotiate the American distribution of the story of a three-day pass. Despite being an award-winning filmmaker, novelist, and editor of a major French magazine, he doesn't have enough money to pay for his flight. He has to rely on donations from friends and girlfriends to buy his ticket. And upon arriving in New York, he's completely homeless. He's couch surfing with friends, shacking up with various women, and when a bed wasn't available, he slept on a bench on the corner of 10th Street and Greenwich Ave, just outside the Manhattan Women's Correctional Facility. His agent was still unable to find a script that even came close to the kind of story Van Peebles wanted to tell, and Melvin was repeatedly frustrated by American distributors demanding that he cut the words fuck you from the story of a three-day pass, a concession he was unwilling to make. The process left Melvin emotionally and artistically frustrated. 
During a 2005 documentary with Ozzie Davis and Gordon Parks, Melvin gives a brief insight into his creative process and his relationship with an entity he refers to as his muse. Probably most importantly, I'm not sure if my muse is a woman or gay. I haven't figured that out yet. Whenever I want to do something, I come up with sort of an idea. I go to my muse, and my muse has always got an attitude, always. I haven't seen you, you haven't been around. Come on, help me out. No, 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 just forget it. So I'm required to have an argument with her, and, and which ends with my getting angry. And I said, forget it, forget it, you understand what I'm saying? I'll do it myself. I take out my notes, and I'm working. But the muse cannot stand for me to be working without her. And she'll come back and she'll look over my shoulders. No, that's not right. You should do I take notes on what she's saying. That's all right. <laughs> so that's just, that is probably the most influential, if it is a lady, hmm, um, in my life. So perhaps it was the muse that suggested Melvin find what was missing in the Black Power movement. As he says in a 2008 interview with the Red Bull Music Academy, quote, When I came back to America, there was a Black Revolution. But the music was not revolutionary. There was straight blues and straight jazz, but none of it talked about what was really going on. Can you imagine when the major part of the political rise in America began to happen, we still did not have music talking about the problems in America? And in another interview from the documentary How to Eat Your Watermelon in White Company and Enjoy It, he says, quote, There were no black songs. There was We Shall Overcome, there was Dylan, there was Baez, but there were not what I felt were the things that mirror the black experience. Now, it's with the benefit of hindsight that I can say this statement kind of gives short shrift to songs like Nina Simone's Mississippi Goddamn, Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come, and the staple singer's Freedom Highway. But then again, maybe Melvin never heard these songs in France. Maybe he just didn't like them. Or maybe Melvin likes to tell the story where he's the groundbreaking genius hero. Either way, his muse was whispering in his ear. He later said, quote, I felt that the black experience had been hijacked musically to being simply rhythm, beat, and melody, and the words were getting lost. I wanted to invent a style where the words would carry the message and the melody, and I wanted to give voice to voiceless people. Now, his only musical experience was a byproduct of his early short films when he taught himself piano because he couldn't afford a competent or reliable musician. He created his own system of numbering the keys, labeling white keys, one, two, three, etc., and the black keys, one and a half, two and a half, three and a half, and on and on. He would use this method to write and compose music for the rest of his life. In addition to this, you may remember that Melvin had occasionally supported himself as a street singer when he was homeless in Paris. Eventually, he learned of the tradition, la chanson réaliste, or in English, realist songs. This was a French musical tradition created by a legendary 19th century French singer named Aristide Brouin. Born in 1851, Brouin was raised in a bourgeois family, but ran to Paris at the age of 15, immersing himself in the bohemian world of Montmartre, cafés, and cabarets. 
he began performing at the popular club Le Chat Noir, dressed in all black with a long red scarf, barking out songs that glorified the poor, the destitute, and the dispossessed, all while using his quick wit and insult comedy to antagonize and delight the crowd. Over a 50-year career, he wrote many popular songs, such as A La Bastille, about a prostitute plying her trade beneath the walls synonymous with revolution. So one day in New York City, Melvin runs into jazz drummer Warren Smith. Now, Smith was an accomplished live and studio musician who had played with artists such as Miles Davis, Gil Evans, Nina Simone, Janis Joplin, Aretha Franklin, and Nat King Cole. And apparently, Smith had at some point lived in the exact same building on Chicago's 58th Street that Melvin grew up in. So Melvin starts hanging out with Warren, and he's telling him about his dream of, of giving a voice to the voiceless and, and these French songs and, and Aristide Bruant and, and he, he, do you want to see my numbered keyboard? And Warren, being a hip 60s New York jazz cat, says, cool, let's do it. So Smith assembles a band of aspiring musicians that included bassist Herb Bushler and saxophonist Howard Johnson, and he books recording time with prominent New York engineer Gene Radice, who just the previous year had mixed and edited the legendary album The Velvet Underground and Nico. All Melvin needed now were actual songs. He wanted to capture that true voice of the streets, just like Aristide Bruant had done in 1880s Paris. And one night, while sleeping on his park bench, Melvin was awakened by the sound of shouting. He saw a man standing outside of the women's detention center calling up to his imprisoned lover. At first he thought the woman inside must be completely ignoring this guy. Then he realized that after the man spoke, the lights in one of the upper floor windows flickered on and off. The women in the jail weren't allowed to shout back, and so this is how they would communicate. The result was a bizarre, one-way conversation of love and longing echoing through the Manhattan night, and Melvin turned this into the song, Tenth and Greenwich. Is that your light, sugar? How they treating you, sugar? Make me some kind of sign so I know it's you. Cause you so far away. Dorothy? I miss you. Baby, is you gonna ever come back and dance with me? Then 
one day Melvin was sitting in a restaurant and a woman passed and someone said, hey, check her out. And he turns around, but it's too late and the woman was gone. So Van Peebles imagines a story about a blind man who falls for a woman on the corner and he asks his buddy to describe her. Only it's not a woman and his buddy doesn't know how to tell him this. This became the song, Catch That on the Corner. Hey, baby, am I glad to see you. Catch that on the corner. She passed this way a moment ago. She probably tall and wearing something cool, maybe green. Do you see it? Wrapped me. Come on, baby, what you see? The light don't change fast, you know. Start from the top, go to the toe. Natural or calm or conkaline. What's on the corner? Come on, baby, rap to me. Now, did you hear the word he used? Did you catch that? Now, the word rapping had long been used as slang for an informal speech or debate. But this might very well be the first use of the term rap on a record. Usually, that's ascribed to the 1970 Isaac Hayes track, Monologue, Ike's Rap 1, off the album To Be Continued. But this was pressed to wax two years earlier. I'm, I'm not a historian, but... If someone can find an earlier use, I'd love to know about it. Finally, there was the album's opening track with the concise title of Lily Done the Zampuji Every Time I Pulled Her Coattail. Melvin explains the genesis of this song in a 1971 interview with local Detroit news program Reelin' in the Years. Yeah, it was a great tune off of that cult which um, maybe a lot of people are familiar with. Lily do the jam, Poojie. Yeah, every time, every time I, I pull in her coattail. Right. That was a great tune. Right. Uh, right. Tell us about that. That, that. that fascinates me. The word jam, zam, pambuji. Zam, Poojie. Zam, Poojie. Well, um, I made zam, Poojie up as a word. And uh, it was very, because I wanted a word that sounded African and uh, um, sounded together and so forth. And uh, I didn't know if I'd been successful until I heard two people arguing what the zam, Poojie was. And one guy said, no, it's a, it's a river in Africa. And I thought it was else. a dance, or it was supposed to be. Well, it was, it's supposed to be a dance, yes. But these, this is people who didn't know the song, you uh -huh. see. Um, Lily, the, um, the, the genesis of Lily is um, um, a chick I bought in the Gramercy Park Hotel. And, uh, <laughs> so having recorded this album of crazy songs that are nothing like anything else that's being made right now, Warren Smith introduces Melvin to the reps at the country's largest independent record label, A&M Records, and they agree to release the album. As a pseudonym, Melvin draws inspiration from the original trickster deity with roots all the way back to West Africa and releases the album under the name Brer Soul. Now, for a while while researching this episode, I was convinced that since A&M Records had bought the old Chaplin studio in L.A., that through some amazing twist of circumstance, Melvin Van Peebles somehow recorded Brer Soul in the exact same place that Charlie Chaplin had filmed City Lights. 
However, while I've been unable to locate a definitive recording location, I'm pretty sure that the New York roots of all the musicians involved, plus the fact that Gene Reduce was based in New York, plus Melvin's August 1968 appearance on the PBS show Black Journal, during which he is clearly visible in Manhattan, I can say with almost complete certainty that Brer Soul was in fact recorded in New York City and then simply distributed by A&M Records. That summer, 1968, saw continued political and social upheaval, and Melvin, living this incredibly creative, free, bohemian life, soaked it all up like a sponge. The Tet Offensive brought more American troops and increased violence to the Vietnam War. In May, French student protests grew in size and were met with police violence. And for seven weeks, French cities were engulfed in riots and mass strikes that ground the economy to a halt. On June 3rd, in New York City, radical feminist Valerie Solanas shot Andy Warhol at the factory. And two days later, on June 5th, Democratic presidential frontrunner Robert Kennedy was assassinated at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, the same building in which Hattie McDaniel had won her Oscar in 1939. On July 8th, after much negotiation, the story of a three-day pass opens in New York. It was a well-received but small release, somewhat disappointing for what had once been hailed as the genius work of America's first black director. A week later, on July 15th, Huey P. Newton's trial begins in the Alameda County Courthouse. 5,000 demonstrators and 450 Black Panthers gather to show their support, bringing national media coverage to the group. The phrase, Free Huey, became a rallying cry, and Newton was transformed into a martyr. At the end of August, millions of Americans watch on television as anti-war protesters clash with police outside of the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. For many white viewers, it was their first time seeing police be openly violent toward white people. The event doomed Democratic presidential nominee Hubert Humphrey as Republican Richard Nixon ran a campaign under the veiled threat to restore law and order. On September 8th, a jury consisting of 11 white members and one black member found Huey P. Newton guilty of voluntary manslaughter. Newton's lawyers appealed, citing a biased jury. And on September 26th, the album Brer Soul was released. The liner note belied Melvin's intellectual shift from the previous year. It was two simple words. Free Huey. Friends and family were surprised to learn that Van Peebles had released an album of original songs. They described his singing voice as, quote, monstrous or, quote, like a frog on crack. Filmmaker St. Clair Bourne says, quote, the quality of Melvin's voice you could really argue about. It's not like bad. It's just unique. So you got to say, all right, you got to deal with it. <laughs> That's a funny quote. Okay. Uh, however, despite this, the record did find a home on underground radio stations across the country. And the over seven minute long track, Lily Done the Zampuji Every Time I Pulled Her Coattails, got pretty good radio airplay. 
What's the prettiest sight in the world? Some say a white on white or a red on red machine. Some say the connection coming round the corner. Some say a plate of collard or mustards. Prettiest thing I ever seen was Lily. Lily doing the Zampuji. Zampuji, that's what I used to call the funny kind of dance she do. Lily do the Zampuji every time I pull her coattail. Scream and scratch her. Make your heart bust with pride. Lay there, catch her breath, getting herself back together. Then, the greatest thing on earth. She jump up and do that Zampuji, baby. For all she was worth. For me. Lily dance to Zampuji. Every time I pull her coattail. I can see it now before me. As plain as day. Do it, Lily. Boom, taka, boom, taka, boom. Do it, Lily. Do it, Lily. Do it, Lily. Timothy White former editor of Billboard magazine, says in the documentary How to Eat Your Watermelon in White Company and Enjoy It, quote, One of my favorite albums of all time is Brer Soul. It took the idea of someone on the margins of society and people's conventional notions of who that person might be. Melvin was trying to do something with narrative that would fire people's imaginations. A record like Brer Soul, when you close your eyes, it's still in your head. We have to really put ourselves back in time to understand why an avant-garde album like this might find an audience. Because we live in a world where hip-hop is king, and it has been for the last 25 years, at least. Through this, we as a culture come to see urban black masculinity as the apex of American authenticity. This is really a byproduct of the Black Panthers, and you can listen to our most recent episode with Amy Ongiri to learn more about that. Back in 1968, mass culture wasn't interested in the urban Black experience. And as Melvin puts it, quote, People didn't know what a picaresque and colorful life they were living. I wanted to make songs that allowed people to start living this life. We had the everyday events of life on the farm, in the cotton field, etc., etc., but when we came north, it was lost. What I tried to do, and what's now happening, the events of everyday life of us in the ghetto, it's been taken on, and the guys have done beautiful work with rap and other parts of the music. Two years after Brer Soul was released, Gil Scott Heron would put out his groundbreaking poetry album, Small Talk at 125th and Lennox. The opening track would come to be seen as the earliest example of hip-hop. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. 
You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. But when Gil Scott Heron was asked about how he came up with a sound that changed the world, he said this, quote, When folks started calling me the godfather, quote, When folks started calling me the godfather of rap, I tried to indicate the fact that there were influences that I picked up on before I started, in particular Melvin and Oscar Brown Jr., who made sure that there was a story inside the things they were talking about. Now, I love Oscar Brown Jr., but I'm going to go on the record and say Melvin Van Peebles' Brer Soul is the first proto-hip-hop album ever made. He would soon follow it up with a second album titled Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death and would continue to write and record music for the rest of his career. By early 1969, you could say that Melvin's master plan of refusing a job in Hollywood was a success. Gordon Parks was in post-production on his autobiographical film The Learning Tree, and acclaimed actor and playwright Ozzie Davis, who you may remember from our episode with Chris Seaving, had suffered a career embarrassment when his 1963 independent film Gone Are the Days flopped at the box office. He had now adapted the Chester Himes detective novel Cotton Comes to Harlem into a screenplay and partnered with United Artists producer Samuel Goldwyn. The film would begin production in May, with Ozzie Davis serving as director and composer. I've often wondered why it was Davis and not Van Peebles who made this movie. It seems strange considering the long working relationship Melvin had with Chester Himes, but I've never found any answer to the question. Instead, Melvin's agent sent him a script titled The Night the Sun Came Out on Happy Hollow Lane. It was written by Herman Rauscher, who, like Van Peebles, was a prolific playwright and novelist who combined tenacious work ethic with natural charm. Rauscher, through really no fault of his own, was in many ways the face of 1960s white privilege. He grew up in Brooklyn with Jewish parents who vacationed on Nantucket. He attended NYU and upon graduating worked in advertising at 20th Century Fox. Soon he became a powerful ad exec in the golden age of Madison Avenue. His colleagues considered him a genius because Rauscher would write plays in his spare time, and he somehow was able to get several of these plays produced on Broadway. He married a Broadway dancer, Mary Catherine Martinet. The couple had two daughters and would remain married for the rest of their lives. To his credit, Rauscher was not taking his charmed life for granted. He questioned his own values and those of the people around him. And after observing that many of his bourgeois liberal friends either consciously or subconsciously held on to racist beliefs, he wrote the script for The Night the Sun Came Out on Happy Hollow Lane. It was about a loudmouth insurance salesman named Jeff Gerber, who lives a picturesque white suburban life straight out of a 1950s TV show. Every morning he works out and spends time in his personal tanning bed, while his liberal wife Althea and their two kids watch the growing racial unrest on the television. 
But Jeff can't be bothered by the plight of rabble-rousing black Americans. Instead, he gets his kicks racing the bus every morning, making crude jokes to a black waiter at his regular diner, and being an off-putting bore to the women in his office. In the middle of the night, Jeff goes to the bathroom, and upon looking in the mirror, is horrified to discover that his skin has become black. He screams, but telling himself that it's all a dream, he goes back to sleep. The next morning comes, and his complexion has not changed. He showers, trying to, quote, wash the black off of him. Althea walks in, screaming, believing a stranger is in her bathroom. Jeff struggles to calm her down and convince her that it is, in fact, her husband. He sneaks out of the house to a pharmacy in the black part of town, where he buys various creams, quote, the stuff they use in order to make themselves look white. However, the creams, the face masks, and bathtubs full of milk, none of it works. The next day, Althea convinces Jeff to return to his office, assuring him that it's not as noticeable as he thinks. Neighbors watch with confusion and horror as a black man performs Jeff's usual race with the bus. As he runs, a policeman chases him, assuming that he stole something. The black bus driver has to save him from being arrested. At work, his secretary, who had previously been repulsed by him, makes several advances towards Jeff. Additionally, his boss sees an opportunity to get extra business with a Negro salesman and reassigns Jeff to only black clients. Jeff goes to his doctor, who cannot explain his sudden change of skin color. He instead suggests Jeff might be more comfortable with a black doctor. When Jeff returns home, he discovers Althea has been harassed by anonymous phone calls from someone using racial slurs. Eventually, Jeff is confronted by his neighbors who, fearing their home values will depreciate due to his presence, offer Jeff $50,000 to buy his home. He negotiates up to $100,000 and sells. Pushed beyond her limits and fearing this sudden change, Althea takes the kids and goes to live with her sister. Jeff sleeps with his secretary, but is repulsed by her racial objectification of him. He resigns from his job and starts his own insurance business in a rundown part of the city. Just as he accepts his fate, Jeff wakes up in bed to discover that it was all a dream. His perspective changed, he reconsiders his cushy life, and no longer takes his privilege for granted. Eager to follow Warner Brothers and United Artists in hiring a black director, Columbia Pictures bought the script. They sent it to Melvin's agent with a tempting offer. The film would be the first of a three-picture deal for Melvin, and already stars Alan Arkin and Jack Lemmon were interested in playing the role of Jeff. Melvin calls his agent and says, You gave me the wrong script. There's all these white actors attached. The agent says, Well, yeah, the guy's white. Melvin says... <laughs> For about 10 minutes, sensing Columbia's thirst, Melvin dictated terms. He would do the film on three conditions. First, that he be allowed to do the soundtrack, just like Gordon Parks and Ozzie Davis were doing for their films. Second, that he be allowed to hire a black actor in the lead role. And third, since both Gordon Parks and Ozzie Davis had been forced to shoot their films on location, Melvin wanted to shoot his film in Hollywood on the studio lot. Columbia agreed, 
and published a press release announcing the signing of the acclaimed black director for his first American film. They soon revealed the depth of their virtue signaling. Industry standard for studio features was about 60 days of shooting, but according to Columbia University film professor Raquel Gates, Melvin was given just 31. Melvin would later claim he was given 23, but since Dr. Gates had access to the studio memos, I'm going to go with her number. Either way, he was given half or less than half of the time that other productions got, and Melvin realized, quote, I was being set up to fail. In her 2014 article, Subverting Hollywood from the Inside Out, Melvin Van Peebles' Watermelon Man, which is one of the few pieces of scholarship about this film, and I will be citing it frequently throughout this portion of the show, Raquel Gates writes, quote, The studio wanted credit for creating a racially progressive film, but only if it could do so in a way that would not challenge racially problematic representations. They had little interest in giving him the tools he needed to create a successful picture and were more interested in the veneer of cultural realness that Van Peebles would lend to the film than in his skills as a director. One studio document analyzing the film's box office approach makes clear what the studio believed Van Peebles' value to be. It said, Melvin Van Peebles is one of the few black directors to make a major film at a major studio. It is he who gives the picture its authentically black viewpoint and the fresh, young, unhandcuffed by tradition approach that has, today, stamped on it in black print. Combining his deal-making instincts from childhood, his many decades spent as a lone black man in a majority white society, and his burgeoning revolutionary consciousness, Melvin committed himself to subverting the studio from the inside out. His first task was finding the right actor for the role of Jeff Gerber. After some searching, he landed on veteran character actor and comic Godfrey Cambridge, who had just wrapped filming on Cotton Comes to Harlem, where he plays lead detective Gravedigger Jones. Again, Raquel Gates, quote, Growing up in Canada and New York, Cambridge was often the sole African-American at school and in his neighborhood. He claimed that rather than feeling marginalized, these environments left him blind to the ways in which race functioned and consequently the significance of his own blackness. Cambridge added, quote, I never felt racial prejudice because I was the only Negro. It's terrible for someone to reach the age of 21 and realize he's a Negro to spend all that time leading a sheltered life. Cambridge initially studied to be a physician, but after three years of medical school at Hofstra University, he dropped out to pursue his dream of acting. He got his break at the age of 28 acting in Jean Genet's subversive comedy about performative race and racism titled The Blacks. The original cast included James Earl Jones, Cecily Tyson, and Maya Angelou. Godfrey Cambridge won an Obie Award for his performance, and the play became the longest-running off-Broadway non-musical of the decade. Cambridge would go on to appear on Broadway, on television, and release multiple comedy albums. Journalist Gerald Nachman notes that Cambridge, quote, presented a comic persona he squeezed in somewhere between Dick Gregory and Bill Cosby. His razor-sharp racial barbs felt painless wrapped inside so much personal warmth. 
Here he is in a clip from his only stage appearance during the filming of Watermelon Man. So they're trying to some kind of honesty in films now, you know, like they do guess who's coming to dinner. I saw that picture. Everybody told me it was supposed to be controversial. I said, what controversy? Guess who's coming to dinner asks a very simple question. Can a white, wealthy, liberal San Francisco family accept the marriage of their daughter to a typical Negro? It will happen to be a combination of Jonas Salk, Albert Schweitzer, and a Jolly Green Giant. <laughs> what honesty. I mean, look, for example, there's that scene with Kate Hepburn and the daughter in the room where she says uh, to the daughter, she says, did anything happen in Hawaii? And the daughter says, no, mama. I wanted to, but he didn't. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> in today's permissive society, what she should have done was winked at the mother and said, ma, have I got a new definition of black power for you? <laughs> now, the story device of a white person changing into a black person to theoretically say something progressive about race in America had been used twice on the big screen during the 1960s. There was 1964's independently produced Black Like Me, which was the supposed true story of a white journalist traveling to the South wearing black makeup to learn what it's like to live as a black man under Jim Crow. It featured a pitifully unpassable James Whitmore in blackface. And the device was used again in the 1968 musical Finian's Rainbow which is notable for being Fred Astaire's last studio film and director Francis Ford Coppola's first. In the film, white actor Keenan Wynn plays Senator Billboard Rockins, a bigoted Southerner who transforms into a black man and learns the errors of his racist ways. Both films attempt to show that the problem with being black in America is all the white people. However, this message is negated by the historically bigoted makeup and the racist byproducts of their transformations, namely that both characters experience some combination of increased sexual virility and happy musical talent. All that time we spent in part one talking about the history of blackface, well, here's why it matters. Because whether they realized it or not, by agreeing to cast Godfrey Cambridge in the role of Jeff Gerber, Melvin had forced Columbia to become the first major Hollywood studio to use white makeup on a black man. Again, Raquel Gates. Quote, Van Peebles' substitution of whiteface for Columbia's desired blackface marks a radical and subversive shift, a direct black critique of whiteness as a response to a studio attempt to preserve the problematic trope of white actors blacking up to portray black characters. Whiteface had been used previously in the theater. Author Marvin McAllister notes in his book, Whiting Up, quote, in the early 1890s, black performer Bob Cole turned blackface minstrelsy on its head with his nationally recognized whiteface creation, a character he called Willie Wayside. And over the following century, there was a small yet enduring tradition of whiting up. 
Godfrey Cambridge himself donned whiteface for his role in Jean Genet's The Blacks. The device was used again off-Broadway for Douglas Turner Ward's 1965 play Day of Absence, a one-act play he called a reverse minstrel show, in which Ward had black actors in whiteface portray the bigoted citizens of a nameless southern town on a day when all the black people inexplicably disappear. The play won multiple Obie and Drama Desk awards. But in 1969, whiteface makeup was still unheard of on film, let alone in a major Hollywood production. And Melvin, not only did he intend to shoot Godfrey Cambridge's face in white makeup, he wanted a shot of Cambridge completely naked, lying face down in his tanning bed. Realizing that a white makeup artist would have to apply white makeup to Cambridge's face, torso, and buttocks, Columbia Studios quickly hired a black makeup artist for the job. She, in turn, became the first black makeup artist ever hired by Columbia, and thus Melvin had inadvertently dragged the studio one tiny step closer to integration. Melvin let the studio handle most of the casting, which featured recent Academy Award Best Supporting Actress Estelle Parsons as Althea and future Dolomite director Derville Martin as the bus driver, along with a cast of mostly TV actors. The only other actor that Melvin fought for was Manton Moreland as the black waiter in Jeff Gerber's favorite diner. Now, if you remember from part two of our series, Manton Moreland was a controversial African-American actor known for playing stereotypical and degrading black roles. Godfrey Cambridge, in his 1966 comedy album, Ready or Not, Here's Godfrey Cambridge, openly mocks Moreland along with actor Stephen Fetchett. In this bit, he plays a character named Arthur Uncle, not to be confused with Uncle Tom. It's a long clip, but I think it's worth it. Arthur, it's good to see you. How have you been? Oh, oh, oh yes, sir. Hi, Mr. Producer. Uh, 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 you, you look nice and healthy. You got a nice tan. Well, thank you, Arthur. Now, we're considering you for a part in our new production. How do you feel about playing a controversial Negro? Oh, oh yes, sir. You mean somebody like, like Nat Turner or Martin Luther King, yes, sir? Well, it's a servant, Arthur, that shuffles a little bit and sings. <laughs> well, um, when does this take place? It's a Civil War play with oh. music. Well, well, that's all right, because that's the way it was in them days. I mean, yeah, that, that, that's the way it was because everybody was running around singing and dancing. I, I mean, that, that's historically accurate. That's all right. That, that's a fact. That, that's okay. Well, let me tell you a little bit about the character, Arthur. He's the only slave that fought for the South. Oh. <laughs> Is that the only part that I could play? Well, we only have one Negro in the play, Arthur. You see, with one Negro, we feel we can really speak for your people. Yeah, well, well I, I could make a statement. Because uh, uh, that's the way it was in them days. Uh, they did have a few that fought on the side of the South. I mean, that's historically accurate. That, that, that's, a, that, that's a fact. That, that's all right. Well, what we've done, Arthur, is we've updated it to the 1960s. Oh. 
But, uh, but they still got a few that do that to this very day. Uh, 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 I, I seen them myself. Uh, I mean, that's all right. They got a right to be represented. That's okay. Well, fine, Arthur. Now, the choreographer is here. Uh, would you dance for us a little bit? Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> uh, uh, not that, Arthur. Try a shuffle. A shuffle? Uh-huh. Well, I'll tell you, I don't mind shuffling. Because actually, shuffling is a sign of defiance. See, because that man giving that food while it's hot and you just saw to get back at him by taking your time till it's cold, like this. Well, uh, forget the defiance now, Arthur. Uh, really enjoy it and uh, throw in a little song, would you? Yes, sir. I'm happy. <laughs> I'm happy when I'm with you. Oh, that's fine, Arthur. You've got the part. Thank you. <laughs> See that? Y'all can put me down if you want it. I, I don't care. I can make a statement. <laughs> that's the way it, that's the way it was in them days. <laughs> I don't have to pick it. I just want to work. <laughs> well, I'll be on television before you are. Like Cambridge, Melvin knew his film history. He knew that casting Moreland would not just help redeem a talented performer who was forced to survive in a racist system, but he could use Moreland's presence to signal his subversion of Hollywood's racism to his intended black audience. Quote, I went and got him because he was great. I get it. He had to play what he had to play because he had to eat. But that doesn't mean that's where his heart was. So, Melvin Van Peebles struts onto the studio lot, ready to get to work. Everybody stops and stares. He approaches the reception desk and asks, which soundstage will I be working in? She says, oh, are you the new janitor? Okay, not off to a great start. Uh, Melvin carries on. For the opening sequence, he decides to build upon the montage techniques he was exploring in the story of a three-day pass. He juxtaposes Jeff Gerber going through his morning self-care routine using a variety of absurd and expensive exercise equipment, as well as a personal tanning bed, with Althea going through her morning routine, getting dressed, putting on nude stockings, nude pumps, and putting white toast into a toaster, foreshadowing Jeff's impending transformation. The sequence reveals Jeff's white identity as a strenuously maintained construction, a mask he must work for and put on every day. And when seen performed by a black actor in whiteface, as Raquel Gates writes, quote, it has the effect of making whiteness strange. 
Jeff then sits with his family for a sitcom-style breakfast. Melvin immediately frames the surrealist scene in terms of television, as the family watches footage of race riots on the TV, to which Jeff can only reply, That's gotta be the smallest screen in the world. They look like ants. They're getting very dangerous. Screen that size ought to only have 15-minute shows. <laughs> Get it? Small screen, small shows? <laughs> you said that yesterday. You didn't get it yesterday either. It wasn't funny yesterday any more than it'll be funny tomorrow. Critics everywhere. Aren't you concerned with the civil rights issue? Yeah, sure. Most people are just crazy. They think that at any moment a Negro is going to hit them over the head with a watermelon and steal their high school ring. From the very start, the television is regarded as a negative mediator, allowing Jeff to minimize the concerns of others down to the size of his screen. Throughout it all, Cambridge's absurd performance of whiteness is not only hilarious, but it's also a pointed critique of historical black portrayal on film. After racing his morning bus, he stops to the diner where he is greeted by Manton Moreland, who at first appears to be playing his old stereotypical role. Morning, Mr. Gerber. Ah, oh, morning, Joe. How goes it? Oh, okay. Any rioting in the neighborhood last night? Uh, I don't see any broken windows. Uh, <laughs> what's the matter? This place ain't good enough to, to loot. <laughs> Oh, yes, uh, but make mine a double. I'm feeling a bit under par this morning. Hmm? Oh, one double Polynesian health juice. Coming up. <laughs> hey, uh, no offense about that uh, that looting remark, you know? Oh, no, Mr. Gerber. <laughs> I know you don't go for that sort of thing. <laughs> no, okay. And, of course, if you did, <laughs> it'd be very hard for the police to identify you. I mean, an hour later... <laughs> oh, you cats look alike. Here's to your help. Oh, excuse me, Mr. Gerben. Now, you can't see it, but in that moment, just before the phone rings, Manton Moreland looks at Jeff and his exaggerated grimace falls away. It's just a tiny beat, but that beat contains poetry. Raquel Gates cites the powerful words of African-American poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who wrote his famous poem, We Wear the Mask, in 1895. We wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile. With torn and bleeding hearts we smile and mouth with myriad subtleties. Why should the world be overwise in counting all our tears and sighs? Nay, let them only see us while we wear the mask. We smile, but, O oh great Christ, our cries to thee from tortured souls arise. We sing, but, O oh, the clay is vile beneath our feet and long the mile, and let the world dream otherwise, we wear the mask. That moment, 
when Manton Moreland's mask comes down, combined with the banjo sound effects, would have clearly been seen by black audiences in 1970 as a pointed satirical jab of Hollywood stereotypes. Again, Raquel Gates, quote, Van Peebles wanted the scene to be subtle enough to get past the white Columbia executives, but he made sure that knowing audiences would see it for what it was, a satire of the type of racial buffoonery that Hollywood had created through its limited use of actors such as Moreland. Melvin could hardly do anything on set without the studio watching over his shoulder, and he soon found out that executives were conducting their own market research by calling in a black administrative assistant, the only other African-American on staff, to watch the dailies and give her opinion on the racial content. Intimidated, the young woman simply agreed with whatever the executives said. Now, I'll admit the middle of the film drags as Jeff and Althea try in vain to change his skin color back to white, but things pick up after the midpoint when Jeff begins to face a kind of California casual white supremacy seldom seen on the silver screen. What's wrong? 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 Nothing's wrong. Well, how come you're on fire? Don't answer it. I beg your pardon. Don't answer it. Or may I ask why? It's a wrong number. Well, then by all means, let's not answer it. Uh, but I feel I should ask you this, Althea. Uh, how do you know it's a wrong number? It has a different sound. Wrong numbers sound more neurotic because the circuits are confused. I see. And it just upsets that if you answer it. Uh-huh. Strange, but it sounds like a right number to me. No, you're wrong. You're nuts. Hello? Jeff Garber? Yes? It was the wrong number. Now, in the original script, just as Jeff loses the privilege and pretense of his life as a white man and begins to experience the harsh realities of black life in America, he magically turns white again. To Melvin, this presented blackness as if it was a nightmare from which one would be lucky to wake up from. He said, fuck that. Blackness was not a nightmare. He insisted Jeff Gerber stay black. By this point, the studio had accommodated many of Melvin's requests, but writer Herman Rauscher was complaining that Van Peebles was taking too many liberties with his script, which he believed to be a critique of liberal whiteness, not a journey into black consciousness. Van Peebles suggested a compromise. Since he was already under schedule, he would shoot both endings and let the studio pick which one they wanted. The studio agreed, and shooting wrapped in late fall after a shockingly efficient 21 days of production. Melvin delayed sending the negative to the lab, and after a few weeks, the sets were disassembled and the actors went their separate ways. Melvin returned to France, and that's when the editor called. Hey, Mel, uh, we've got a problem, Melvin says. Oh, yeah, what's that? They said, well, we can only find one of the endings. Where's the ending with him waking up back in bed? What did you, what did you say to them when they said, well, where's ours? Oh, Lord, I must say, I done forgot. <laughs> what did you expect me to say? I didn't say, well, you racist dogs, do you think I'm going to fall for that? Melvin rightly guessed that the studio would be too cheap to reassemble the cast and sets and would be forced to accept his ending. Instead of Jeff turning white again, 
we instead see Jeff working out, shirtless. Only this time, he's surrounded by black men, all wielding brooms and mops. They are undergoing military training, wielding their tools of servitude as weapons for the black revolution. Jeff has completed the journey from blind privilege to awakened revolutionary. Rauscher was furious. He accused Van Peebles of ruining his film. He was so angry that he published a novelized version of his script to both preserve the original ending and to prevent Van Peebles from doing the same. Melvin flew back for a private screening with Columbia execs. As the film ended and the lights came up, a shoe shiner, one of the few black employees at the studio, stood up in the back of the room and shouted, That's the best film I ever saw! I'm going to tell my whole family about it! The execs turned to Melvin, smiling, and said, Well, it looks like you got yourself a hit, Mel. After the meeting ended, Melvin met the shoeshiner in the parking lot and gave him the $10 he had promised him. He was confident the movie was good, but he didn't want to take any chances. Melvin worked on the soundtrack throughout early 1970. It featured several tracks of his now signature frog-on-crack rapping style, including Love, That's America, which I honestly can't believe was the first track on a major motion picture soundtrack. Have a listen. Excuse me, buddy, but... Excuse me, lady, but... You're fooling, ain't you? Where can I be? This ain't America, is it? The album also included some uncredited slide guitar from legendary guitarist Ry Cooter, whom cinephiles will know as the guitarist on the soundtrack to Vim Vendor's 1984 masterpiece, Paris, Texas. When it was all said and done, Van Peebles had done something extraordinary. Although not the artistic achievement of his previous film, he had managed to tell a revolutionary black power story from inside the conservative and risk-averse world of a Hollywood studio. But sadly, Columbia did not even know what they had, much less how to market it. As an internal memo reads, quote, the advertising approach should appeal to the amusement-seeking audience and should strongly indicate that this is a picture they will enjoy. Any message and or social commentary inherent in the film will make its point as it was intended to by indirection. The lack of interviews, both in print and on television, gives some indication of Columbia's reticence to promote the film and give the unfiltered Melvin Van Peebles a platform to speak. Watermelon Man opened on May 27, 1970, the same day as Cotton Comes to Harlem, and yet for some reason Watermelon Man opened in New York, while Cotton Comes to Harlem opened in Chicago. Go figure. 
The film grossed $61,000 on its opening weekend and $1.1 million in its theatrical run, making it a modestly successful yet mostly forgettable comedy released during one of the worst years in Hollywood history. Melvin was frustrated. Quote, 80% of the creative energy that I put into Watermelon Man went into the corridors of power, wrestling for the freedom to direct the film as I saw fit. In Europe, the director is sort of like the captain of the ship. In America, he's just a member of the committee and not even the chairman at that. He had been on a 15-year artistic odyssey. It had brought him across the world and back again. Along the way, he had rubbed elbows with some of the most influential artists, curators, and thinkers of the 20th century. He had learned countless skills without any institutional assistance. He had fathered a family and broken their hearts in the mad pursuit of what he felt was his calling. He gamed the system in ways no one else had done and with a skin color that made every goal that much more unachievable and every setback that much more damning. At every turn, he could have given up, but he didn't. And here he was, having stormed the castle walls and fought tooth and nail to the center of the citadel, Hollywood, California. And there he planted his flag on the very spot where the bodies of a million other black artists had been belittled and mocked and left to rot in artistic purgatory. And yet, Melvin was miserable. Is this really what I've fought for? Is this what my life is going to be? Little did he know that there were forces conspiring in the forgotten theaters of downtown America that would show him the way. I recently was a guest on the podcast Archive Atlanta, which is a fantastic history show about my home city where host Victoria Lemos does some amazing local historical work. During the episode, I talked about Atlanta cinema history, and in researching for the show, I spent a lot of time on the website cinematreasures.org. If you're unfamiliar, it's a message board that allows people to catalog U.S. movie theaters, both current and no longer standing. People share facts and details and personal stories, and I came across a comment that really struck me. A poster with the name Stan Malone wrote this on June 6, 2005, recalling his time as a teenager working at the Coronet Theater in Midtown Atlanta. Quote, The Coronet, located on Peachtree Street between the Atlanta and Fox Theaters, was really built with the first-run roadshow crowd in mind. It had 600 seats, 35 and 70 millimeter projectors, and a beautiful wall-to-wall -wall curved screen. By the time it was built, 1968, those days were about over for downtown theaters. The only movie of this type that played there was a 70 millimeter run of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. It looked great on that screen, but nobody came to see it. There was a brief time when the coronet tried to cash in on the brief craze of sex-oriented movies that came out in the late 60s that were produced by some major studios, seeing just how far they could push their newfound ability to put anything on the screen. The most notable of these was something called Can Hieronymus Merkin Ever Forget Mercy Hump and Find True Happiness? 
I'm not kidding about this. You can look it up on IMDb. The first successful black movie that played at the Coronet was something called Watermelon Man with Godfrey Cambridge. That was something of an unexpected hit and woke the ownership up to the fact that there was a vast untapped market for downtown theaters. Since the end of segregated movie houses, African-American audiences had struggled to find theaters that welcomed them and studios that made movies they could relate to. But the hundreds of theaters left empty due to suburban white flight, and films like Watermelon Man and Cotton Comes to Harlem combined to create new spaces where black audiences could be welcomed and entertained. Hollywood had not yet realized that they were sitting on an economic gold mine that would produce dependable profits in an era where major studios teetered on the edge of bankruptcy. Melvin's muse leaned over and whispered in his ear, Fuck em. Paint the fucking oranges. And cut. On the next episode, Melvin holds up a middle finger to the studio execs and sets out on his own. What follows is one of the most notorious, groundbreaking, and profitable independent films ever made, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Behind the Slate is an official podcast of the Arroyo Film Club. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. If you have any questions, comments, you just want to say hi, shoot me an email, behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. That's behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. You can always follow us on Instagram at behindtheslatepod, on TikTok at behindtheslatepod, on Twitter at behindtheslate underscore. I think that's all the things. And until next time... That's a wrap. Oh.